Let's stand together for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark, the sixth chapter, beginning at the first verse. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here also? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. As we turn to the preaching of the word, let us pray. Come now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Overrule and overwhelm. Overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, our ears and our hearing, so that what is said and what is heard is of and from and by you, in accordance to the word of God, for the good of God's people and for the glory of God and the Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated this morning. Well, a few weeks ago, we started a new sermon series over the book of Judges, and uh, we did things a little bit in an unusual way. We began at the very beginning. That wasn't the unusual thing, but then we stepped to the very end of the book to sort of cover the entirety of the cultural circumstances within the people of Israel among the 12 tribes of Israel during this history, this time period in the history of Israel. And what we see from the very beginning of the book of Judges and what we see at the very end of the book of Judges is really a portrait that is very, very, very bleak. I don't know that many of us were very uplifted uh, by those particular sermons. Bleak because the people of Israel had uh, rejected Yahweh as their God and as their king. Bleak because they had fallen into idolatry. Bleak because they had given themselves over in attempts to define for themselves what is good and what is right to evil. Bleak because that evil led to uh, religious degradation. That evil led to moral degradation. That Evil led to indifference and dehumanizing of others and of the self. Today, we we step back into what we can call the main body of the book of Judges. It runs from chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 16, verse 31. This is the main section of the book of Judges. This is the section of the book with which we are all most likely most familiar This is the book, the part of the book of Judges where we read about Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, where we read about Gideon and Samson. This is the book of deliverers, and it recounts the careers of the judges, men and one woman who were specifically called, specifically raised up, specifically equipped by God to deliver the people of Israel out of the hands of the oppressors. This morning, we're going to, again, treat 
uh, in very survey-like fashion our passage that Jeff read for us. You'll notice uh, Jeff did a marvelous job pronouncing the name Kush, R- Kushan Rishnathahim, and I will not once mention it in the sermon, so thank you very much. Good job. <laughs> but as we're not going to be able to treat this passage verse by verse because of its length, I want to encourage you. After hearing the three main themes we're going to touch upon this morning, go home and read these verses. Read these 24 verses of the Bible. 24 verses. And reflect upon them. The three main themes that I really want to explore this morning and spend our time upon revolve around God, Jesus, and us. And, uh, when we first started this particular sermon series, I asked the rhetorical question, why are we preaching through Judges? The first reason we're preaching through Judges is because of what it tells us about God. This morning, what we see in this passage is that God is faithful to his people even when they are unfaithful to him. The second reason why we're preaching through the book of Judges is because of what it shows us about Jesus. The judges themselves point us to Jesus. The need of the people of Israel for a king and for a new heart, as we've seen, point us to Jesus. And so this morning, this passage reveals the unexpected nature of the deliverers that God provides and points us toward the unexpected deliverer, who is Jesus. And finally, uh, when we started this sermon series, I, I said that we're preaching through the book of Judges because of what it says it has to say about us as people as the church, as God's people in this world. And so this morning we see that this passage reveals that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes in the world. Those are our three primary themes this morning as we look at Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 31. And in this passage, in this whole main section of the book of Judges, There's a cycle of life that that recurs. It runs something like this. The people of Israel sin by committing idolatry, and they actively reject Yahweh as their God. We heard that this morning. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. This forgetting in chapter 3, verse 7, is no mere slippage of the mind. This is not like forgetting to pay the cox bill. This is not like forgetting to pack your lunch. This is an active rejection of Yahweh. The term forget, in fact, in the Hebrew is a term that indicates covenant unfaithfulness, an active rejection. And so the the narrative, the cycle begins with the people of Israel making a choice to worship false idols and to turn their back on the God who rescued them from Egypt. Yahweh responds to this with discipline. In his righteous anger, God gives Israel over to foreign oppressors. After a period of suffering oppression, the people of Israel cry out to Yahweh for deliverance. Perhaps out of repentance, perhaps out of simple hopelessness, perhaps they felt that they were down to their last resort, the people cry out. And God responds to this cry by equipping, by calling and equipping a judge to lead them out from under the oppressors. And while the judge lives, God works through the judge to get the oppressor defeated, and then God works through the judge to give the land peace. But then, as we saw again this morning when the judge dies, the cycle begins again. As the people of the Lord once again forget Yahweh, do evil in his eyes by doing what was right in their own mind. 
That's the cycle to life in the book of Judges. Perhaps for you, and maybe you're like me in this, but perhaps the most surprising fact or most surprising aspect of this cycle, this pattern in the book of Judges, this most surprising thing is not the sin of the people of Israel. We're human enough to know the human sin. So it's not the sin of Israel, perhaps, that is surprising to us, but rather it's the faithfulness and the persistence of God to his people Israel that is surprising. All along the way, we find Yahweh faithful to his people, even when they're unfaithful to him. Why does he do this? Why does God remain faithful? You know that old saying, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And you and I both know, we all know that if we were God, that we would have thrown up our hands and given up on the people of Israel long before we ever got to Judges chapter 3. Am I right? So why is Yahweh faithful to deliver an unfaithful people? Why does he persist with this? Just because that's who he is. God is faithful. Yahweh is faithful to the people of Israel because that is who he is. It's his character to be so. In Exodus chapter 34, God, the God of Israel, passed by Moses. Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai receiving the law. He asked God, let me see you. And so God himself uh, stuck Moses in sort of this cleft of the rock, and he passed by. And as God passed by Moses on top of Mount Sinai, God declared, he revealed himself in word. He says this, Yahweh, Yahweh, using the covenant name, uh, the name that he uses with the covenant of Israel, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In this passing by, he is revealing his character, revealing who he is to Moses. And who he is is defined by a couple of characteristics. The first is merciful. He genuinely cares for his people. The second is gracious. He acts on behalf of those who do not deserve it. And when he acts, he goes beyond, he explodes expectation. He is slow to anger. He's patient. It's really a good thing that God is patient, isn't it? The one thing I really want to draw our attention to in, in this Exodus passage, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh is abounding in steadfast love. You see, this is the English translation of the Hebrew word hesed. I'm sure you've heard about it. Hesed is you know, sometimes referred to as loving faithfulness or loving kindness. It is this word for steadfast love. It is a covenant term, it, and it refers to, as Doug Stewart has written, a long-term reliable loyalty of one member of a covenant relationship to another. Why does God continue to reveal, why does he continue to save the people of Israel in the book of Judges? Because he is abounding in long-term reliable loyalty. Not because the people deserve it, but because he has promised it. Doug Stewart goes on to say, however fickle and unreliable humans may be in their relationship to God, he is nothing of the sort, but rather he, God, can be counted on in every situation and at all times to be completely faithful to his promises for his people. 
And so it's the very steadfast, abounding, steadfast love that God has for the people of Israel that leads him to discipline them with the oppressors and that leads him to respond to their cry for deliverance. It's the same thing. They're one and the same. Because God loves his people, will be faithful to the covenant of his people, with his people, because God knows what is best. The, the passage in Exodus goes on to talk about God being faithful or truthful. He, he speaks what is true. He can always be counted on to do what is true. And then it goes on to say that God will hold people accountable for their sins. Sins that are passed from one generation to the next. As the new generation continues in the sins of the old generation, they too will be held accountable. There is no gradual decline in moral expectations of God's people simply because the sins continue from one generation to the next. Rather, God holds them accountable. But here's the thing. God is also forgiving. He's no pushover. Sin does have consequences. But God declares in Exodus chapter 34 that he will indeed forgive those who seek his forgiveness. And so why does God persist with his people? Because it's in his character to do so. This is who he is. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is patient. He is full of steadfast love. He is true. He is just. And he is forgiving. And God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is the God of Moses. This is the God of the book of Judges. This is the God we worship today. God is still faithful to his people in Jesus Christ. And so we can be counted, he can be counted on today. Absolutely irrelevant word for the church, absolutely irrelevant word for us, absolutely irrelevant word for me. God is faithful to his people. When they cry out, he delivers. The really amazing thing about the way God delivers in the book of Judges, and I think throughout Scripture, is that when God delivers, he typically uses unexpected individuals to do it. I don't know about the rest of you, but I love it when people do unexpected things, when people blow my mind of my expectations. I love it when, uh, it, when, when people that we think are tiny pipsqueak individuals uh, bench press 1,000 pounds. I think it's amazing when amazing things happen like this. A couple of years ago, in fact, just a year ago, in June of uh, 2017, something amazing happened. In Major League Baseball, only 16 men have hit four home runs in a single game. Most of them are like uh, Josh Hamilton or power hitters. They have over 200 career home runs. But then along came a man named Scooter. Scooter, a Muppet of a dog, a 5'10", 185-pound baseball player named Scooter Gennett, had 38 career home runs, goes into a game on June, tw uh, June 6, 2017, in the midst of an 0 for 19 slump and hits four home runs, including a grand slam, to lead his team to victory. Never again has Scooter again had, had such an outburst of power, this unexpected individual being a hero for a night. God does amazing things. I'm not saying that God empowered Scooter again to hit home runs, but similar to that, God uses unexpected people to do amazing and extraordinary things. This happens with Othniel Ehud Shamgar, God delights in this. The, God delights in the unexpected. God delights in using unexpected people to save his people. Look, look at Othniel, for example. Othniel was sort of an Israelite, kind of adopted into the tribe of Judah, 
because of his connection to Caleb, who was a faithful spy, Caleb's connection to, I believe it was Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law. Not somebody that we would ever expect to be a deliverer. Ehud was left-handed. He's a poor excuse of the tribe of the son of my right hand. That's what Benjamin means. He's a left-handed Benjamite. Wonderful joke. <laughs> and it's in Scripture. And who says that God doesn't have a sense of humor? Shamgar, Shamgar gets one verse. He may not even been an Israelite. There is some evidence that he was actually an Egyptian. Who would ever have considered that these three individuals would deliver the people of Israel from their oppression? Othniel was courageous in chapter 1, absolutely, but he never seemingly rose beyond the level of being a leader of a small town, a small town mayor as opposed to being a national uh, figure, political, military leader. Ehud was certainly unexpected. It says in the scriptures that he was a a left-handed man, and in that day and age, the right hand was the symbol of power and ability. The right hand was the sword hand. To make him even more expected, it, it could be that Chapter 3, verse 15, it says he's left-handed, could be literally understood to mean that there was something about his right hand that did not function properly, that he could not use his right hand, that it was paralyzed or disabled. And so while the world would have looked at Ehud and considered him incapable, he, like Othniel and Shamgar and the other judges, were God's choice. And in God's use of these unexpected deliverers, We're pointed to the unexpected deliverer himself, Jesus. We need to think about this in terms of the words of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 2 and 3. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Nothing stood out about these judges. And as Isaiah points out, nothing stood out about Jesus either. Who would ever expect the Messiah to be born under scandalous circumstances and with such humble origins? Who would ever expect the Messiah to be a carpenter from Nazareth? As we heard from the gospel according to St. Mark this morning, his own neighbors didn't think too much of him. Yet Jesus was and is the unexpected deliverer chosen by God to do God's work of saving. God seems to delight in turning the world's expectations upside down and using the unexpected. And these unexpected deliverers go about doing God's work of deliverance in unexpected ways. You see, for example, in Judges, Ehud had a a dagger specially made, and because he was not what was expected of a warrior, Ehud was able to lure Eglon into a vulnerable position to deliver the killing blow. Shamgar used an ox goad. I suppose he was just poking Philistines to death with an ox goad. And when it comes to the Messiah, who would ever expect victory to come through death? Who would have expected resurrection? If you and I were plotting out a hero story, if you and I were plotting out a rescue, would you ever imagine something like Isaiah proclaimed? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. About these unexpected deliverers, judges to Jesus, pastor and teacher Tim Keller has commented, 
in these historical narratives then, God is showing the world that his salvation will not come in a Hollywood way at all. It will come from an outsider born in a manger through weakness, not what the world calls strength, through defeat, not what the world calls victory, through folly, not what the world calls wisdom. God's ways are not our ways. And God delights in using unexpected people to deliver in unexpected ways, and that is Jesus. Ultimately, that is Jesus for every one of us. Every one of us who are ordinary people. And maybe that's what is most striking about these judges. Maybe that's what's most unexpected about them is their simple ordinariness. Just how ordinary they really are. Othniel was probably herding his flocks, tending to his crops when he was called upon by God. He hadn't been raised in a palace to be a king. He hadn't been trained to be a general. Ehud was doing whatever Ehud did. But if he was indeed limited by the use of his hand, we can certainly assume that he wasn't training to be the deliverer of his people. And so we see here a truth. God uses ordinary people to do his work. And when these ordinary people are enlisted to do his work, God equips them to do something that is extraordinary. Things that are extraordinary because they were things done in the power of God for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. Yahweh, we see, who called Othniel, equipped him with his Holy Spirit to do that which he gave him to do, to deliver the people of Israel from the external oppressors. These ordinary men were not heroes in their own right. Even Othniel, presented here as the first of the judges, presented as the ideal judge, he really only had two qualifications. He was called, raised up by Yahweh. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the judges uh, is a recurring event in the book. He brings God's presence and power to bear. He gives the judges that which is necessary to do the work God has given them to do. These men, ordinary men, were called and equipped by God to serve God's purposes and do extraordinary things. But I wonder if we can think together just for a few minutes about how we define that word extraordinary. Because quite frankly, I'd like for us to challenge and be challenged. I believe our definition of extraordinary is too limited and is too earthly. And in being too earthly, it is not, ironically, earthly enough. Sometimes the most amazing and powerful thing, the most extraordinary thing that a believer in Jesus can do is a simple thing of serving thing. Most of us do and will live quiet lives, what many of us would call ordinary lives. Most of us will not be an Othniel or an Ehud, and perhaps it is there that we suffer by comparison. You're thinking, I'll never be like John, Jim Elliott. I'll never be like Amy Carmichael. I'll never be used by God to do the amazing things that Othniel did. Folks, we do ourselves a disservice when we read the mighty acts of God through these men of faith and then believe that these things are what make up the meat of faith and life in Jesus Christ. It just isn't so. 
In this comparison, when we look to others to dictate what we're supposed to be doing, we miss out on what God wants us to do. We miss out on how God wants to use us, what God has called us to do, and how God has empowered us to do extraordinary things in the power of God for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And I think that's where we need to find our definition of extraordinary. Service in the power of God for the glory of God and the good of of his people. Because so often we overestimate the power of big things and big events like those we find in Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, and we underestimate the power of quote-unquote simple things like love and service, things that we'll find in the book of Ruth, which we'll look into next week. So let's change our minds and begin to define extraordinary as that which is done in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God and for the good of of his people. In her novel, Middlemarch, author George Eliot writes this, the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. You see, in our discipleship, in our following of Jesus as Lord and Savior, it is true, some of us may be called to do heroic things, to move the, to exotic locales, to shake the pillars of culture. But more than likely, it is the story of our discipleship. It is that God wants to work in us and through us by the power of his Holy Spirit to expand his kingdom simply by loving our neighbors and by serving our church. And that is extraordinary. And I think that is encouraging. Encouraging to know that the ordinary people of God doing ordinary things in the power of God for the glory of God and for the good of God's people, that is extraordinary. The truth of the matter is this, all who believe in Jesus are clothed with the Holy Spirit for God's use. So every one of us are ordinary people given the power of God to do extraordinary things in God's power for God's people for God's glory. Changing diapers in the nursery? Anybody think that's extraordinary? It is, actually. It is a very ordinary thing, but an extraordinary thing when done in the power of the Spirit for the good of God's people and for the glory of God. What about offering prayers on the prayer train? What about greeting people as they come into a worship service? What about helping to paint the deck, carry out trash, or serve in one of the other countless areas of need within our church? All very ordinary things, but when empowered by the Holy Spirit, done for the glory of God and for the good of God's people, these ordinary things become extraordinary. Lovingly, lovingly serving a neighbor by mowing an extra swath of grass or pulling some weeds, checking in on them for the pleasant conversation or baking them some brownies, offering hospitality to someone who needs to be loved. These are ordinary things that become extraordinary when ordinary people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, love and serve others for the glory of God and the good of God's people. In his book called Strange Days, Australian pastor Mark Sayers puts it this way. The great hope of the church in our world, the great hope of the church in our world is a people walking in the life of God, being filled with his spirit, crucifying the flesh daily, 
living as citizens of heaven and ambassadors of the kingdom, reflecting Christ-likeness. This is the purpose of your life. It sounds so very ordinary, doesn't it? But in the power of God, for the good of God's people, and for the glory of God, it becomes extraordinary. So what is God, who is faithful to his people, who delivers in unexpected means, what is God calling and equipping you to do? God is faithful to his people even when they are unfaithful to him. When they cry out, he delivers in unexpected ways. This passage points us to Jesus, who is the unexpected deliverer, who reconciles us to God, reconciles us to one another, gives us a new way of being human, gives us a new heart. And this passage tells us that God uses ordinary people and the power of the Holy Spirit for his glory and for the good of his people. And that becomes extraordinary. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy and gracious.